0: Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Samantha Stone. She's the founder and CMO at the Marketing Advisory Network. Samantha, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You you have quite an interesting background. Um, you wrote a book. You're doing a bunch of other really cool stuff. But maybe before we kind of get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
1: Excellent. And generally, that's not a loaded question. But in my case, it's actually a very hard question to answer. So I'll give you a little, sure. maybe a little longer answer than you were looking for. No, no, but, I love it. Um, <laughs> but hopefully, it'll give some interesting context for, for my approach to, to work and life and everything. I actually spent most of my youth living outside of the United States. I am an American, and I grew up um, initially in Connecticut. I was born there. And my parents decided that they wanted a bit of an adventure, and so they became teachers overseas. So I spent five years living in West Africa. Um, I lived in Greece for a little while, and I went to high school in Singapore. So I had, you know, this most amazing uh, experience that is very, very difficult to replicate, but has really made me um, who I am today, and also makes me really appreciate a lot of little conveniences and things that so many of us take for granted.
0: Sure, and I also think, too, and like, I I was born and raised in North America, and, and so I think just even from my own kind of self and the more and more I get to interview people kind of that grew up outside of North America, you realize like the pros and cons of growing up in North America to your point, right? And I think, especially kind of in your space, when you're trying to maybe move a product outside of North America, sometimes we don't really understand the little differences, whether they're good or bad about kind of other parts of the world. Have, have you found that?
1: Absolutely. I think one of the benefits of having done so much travel, both living in other countries and having the opportunity because I was there to explore and vacation in all kinds of different locations, is I had this very hands on interactions with different cultures and really grew to appreciate how important it was for how we communicate. And as marketers, really everything we do is around communication. So when Early in my career, I started to have opportunities to market outside of just the United States. It was very natural for me to be able to not only understand the nuances of how to communicate with customers, but probably the biggest benefit in my early career was I was very comfortable interacting and working with my peers and other parts of the company. And that was not usual for someone who was in their early 20s, be- but this this benefit of having grown up is I, I understood the differences in, in how we communicate and our styles and when it was important to be in person and when I could use the phone and when I was traveling to these other offices, I could enjoy and relax um, and be very, very comfortable knowing that their customs and their styles might be different than what I was used to.
0: Sure. So maybe before we get a little bit deeper into to that side, you have You have quite an extensive kind of educational background. So do you kind of want to cover, you know, where you kind of went to university and kind of what did you take and why you took it?
1: Absolutely. I decided um, after high school that I really loved the life that I had led, but I wanted to come back to America and live full time and do my higher education in the United States. So I enrolled in a small liberal arts college in Connecticut, a college called Trinity College, and it was perfect for me. Uh, And it was perfect for me for a couple of reasons. One was I actually had a lot of extended family in the area. So while my immediate family, my parents and my sister were not living in the country. I didn't feel completely isolated and alone. I did have this connection to grandparents and and aunts and uncles. So Connecticut was very appealing for that reason. But I also really wanted to be at a small uh, school, and Trinity reminded me a lot of the kind of environment I'd grown up in. It was a close community. It was a beautiful campus. I could take all different kinds of things and studying. And ultimately, I knew that I wanted to be in business, but they didn't have a business degree. So I ended up taking um, my degree, my undergraduate degree in economics, and originally thinking I was going to be doing public policy research. And so I spent my four years at school doing a lot of internships and research studies. And in fact, my thesis was on job training programs for urban youth, not something that I use in my day to day career today. However, I really learned a lot about Analysis and overall economic forces and data, and did all kinds of things that I think prepared me to be a marketer in today's day and age. Probably wasn't necessary when I first started. We weren't nearly as data intensive as we are today, but it gave me this foundation um, and analytical background that made me question everything and want to prove everything. And that served me very well as I um, eventually moved into marketing. It wasn't my initial path into my career, but as I got there, it's served
0: me very well sure so I'm curious then kind of walk me and and the listener through your kind of post-university career before you kind of decided to found the marketing advisory network
1: Yeah, it's really um, was
0: an interesting journey for me.
1: I graduated from college with a degree in economics with the full intention of sort of saving the world and and being in politics and things. And I I found it very challenging to find the kind of job that I wanted. And um, I didn't really have the level of experience that I needed. And I also had this burning need to move to the Boston, Massachusetts area. I I can't really tell you why. I just sort of fell in love with Boston. It is a great
0: city, to be fair. So I I get it. I get it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was really, I'd I'd come on a couple of spring breaks with friends from college and just loved it and knew that I wanted to move here. And so I um, moved here and I didn't have a job and I didn't have a place to live. So I got a hotel room and I started doing door-to-door sales, which is, um was this huh. this big wide crazy experience that i had and um i did it for a few months um i lived 100% on commission um solely what i ate for dinner that night and what i had you know how much spending money i had was a complete direct correlation to how well i sold restaurant coupons that day
0: interesting and i
1: was either going to mcdonald's drive through or i was getting a decent meal and cooking for myself that's and, funny and uh, It was really an eye-opening experience, and I I learned a ton about it, and what I um, ultimately decided was that it was getting cold and getting dropped off in strange neighborhoods and walking around basically begging for my meals was um, not a career, and so um, I ended up uh, ultimately doing a couple things. I did a sales job in a play leasing company and ultimately ended up temping Okay. I decided I wanted to go back to graduate school to get my masters in public administration. At that point I still thought I was going to save the world. And I um and so I went into school, uh I got accepted to a graduate program, but I needed to pay for that graduate program. So I ended up temping, not sure what I was going to do while I was trying to figure it out. And my very first temp job, I, it was just complete karma that this happened, was at a company called PowerSoft, which um, for those of you who in the audience who are my age and in my mid 40s will remember, was this real rising star company. They were growing phenomenally, and I just got lucky. I, I can't take any credit for it. I never would have applied at a software company to work in my wildest dreams. It would have been um, the furthest, furthest thing for my mind. And very quickly after I started there, they offered me a full time job. Interesting. And um, I originally said, no, thank you. Really? Wow. <laughs> I did. I was so arrogant and so um sort of full of myself. I said, nope, not what I want to do. But um, very quickly, um, they were amazing. And I had an incredible mentor there. And he offered to pay for graduate school, even though it was not going to be in a business administration degree. They agreed to pay for my public policy degree.
0: Interesting. And
1: they um, let me run. I was working in the channel sales group. And they let me run the government partner program, which was... Um, A way for me to sort of meet this desire to be in public service and 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 do it And the truth is I fell in love I did take a couple of graduate classes and decided this isn't what I want to do this technology stuff is really exciting Right. I didn't really understand it at the time But it was an amazing company and amazing people and it started my career um, In technology and I for years I did channel sales and channel marketing work and then eventually Um, I complained as a salesperson about what marketing was delivering to me. And I complained enough and constructively enough that they said, sure, Samantha, if you can do a better job, you can have it. And they gave me a job at marketing. And so it was a very long, um, uh, undirect path that brought me to marketing complex products and services. But one I'm really fortunate to have done. And, and I think That foundation actually made me a better marketer, Kevin, because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So I just did what worked. And I didn't have these rules that I was following. I was a really analytic person. I'd been a salesperson. While I hadn't sold technology necessarily directly, I'd always sold things, whether I was in a channel sales, selling through government contracts, where I was um, doing door-to-door stuff or selling employee leasing, so I understood and sympathized with the salespeople and what their challenges were. And um, and along the way, um, I just did what worked and experimented, and was really fortunate to learn a lot really fast. And I learned that two things when I made the transition to marketing: a, marketing was a lot harder than I thought it was. Sure. Um, I learned a tremendous respect. Um, for the discipline that I, I didn't understand the complexities going in, and B, that I loved it, that this was really what I was meant to do, and all the things leading up to it made me a better marketer, but I had finally found what would be my sustained career over time, and I did that now for many, many years.
0: Interesting, okay, so walk me through what exactly is the Marketing Advisory Network, and why did you decide to found it?
1: Yeah. I spent um, many years in technology marketing, um, beginning with small teams and then growing them quite substantially, and I worked for very, very large companies like SAP, and I worked for startup organizations launching their first product to market, and I loved what I did, but one of the things that I started to observe as I became more senior in the organization and I was um, growing in my career and in my responsibilities was I was spending most of my time internally focused. And I was doing all of my travel. I would stopped being able to travel out to customers and partners very often. I was just in internal meetings. And I made the decision to say that I wanted to do what I loved, but I wanted to do it with more flexibility and to work with a bigger number of companies at any one given time. And so I Made the transition five years ago this past February, so it's been
0: five years sure, to found. That's our- huge, actually. To- Thank
1: you. I I felt like it was a big milestone, totally. and <laughs> and I'm I need to find a better way to celebrate. I didn't really do a real celebration, so I'm gonna do some belated half birthday you or should. something. Yeah, I- that's
0: awesome. You should. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, it really was my way of um, doing all the things that I love to do in marketing and really help organizations and help sales and marketing teams get better aligned and grow faster and accelerate what they were doing. But to be able to do it for a bunch of different companies with a lot more flexibility. I have um, one of the things we haven't talked about, which is a big part of my life, is I have four kids. Okay. And um, they're now all uh, teenage men and young adults. Gotcha. And... Um, I always intended to work and really wanted to be able to do that, but I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility about where I worked and be able to go up to the cottage for the week while they skied and worked and, you know, do, do those things. So the marketing advisory network, allowed me to do this amazing work. I work with such incredible clients. I feel very, very fortunate every day that I get to do, wake up and do five different things in the same day. And that's sure. just something you can't do when you work for a single company. Yep. And it's, um, it's incredible. And I get to do it with a lot of flexibility. Um, and I have a network of my peers, um, writers, designers, programmers, and things that um, help me when when needed for when projects come up that I can't handle. So I do all different kinds of uh, qualitative research. I do demand gen programs. I do lots of leadership workshops. I do tons of sales and marketing alignment. I do a lot of content strategy. And um, I'm just in- incredibly grateful that this crazy path that I took starting way back living in Liberia for five years somehow led me uh, to this very lucky career.
0: But, but I think... You brought up a bunch of things that I think, like, that I really relate to that I think a lot of people are kind of scared to maybe just go for it one day, right? Like, it sounds really, really stupid, but kind of before, like, I remember, I can't even remember where I was reading it, but it was a number of years ago, like, probably like five, six years ago, where somebody said to me, they were literally just like, you know, anybody that ever has become successful in their life just decided one day to go for it and i was like oh yeah like that makes total sense and it sounds so simple but you, that sounds like exactly what you basically did you were like i got to go i have to yep. go to boston for some reason that i don't really know and i i get that i have the same feeling with like california so i totally get that right yep. and and then there's like been other things in in your career where you're just like you know i can do this better and you just like went for it right and yep. it, it's how do you inspire people to to do that as well like I, I know you wrote a book and and kind of got into this stuff doing this but like how do you kind of help people kind of you know market themselves and kind of their company and their products to just kind of go for what they want I know it's kind of a loaded question
1: yes. <laughs> no it's a great question and it's really important and I think you know, you picked out in your career a couple of examples we've talked about today where I did just go for it. But, you know, it, it isn't always an easy thing to do and I don't and sometimes people meet me and they think, "Wow, Samantha, you've always just gone for it." I've struggled the same way everybody else does. I totally. didn't just go for everything, right? In my in my career and I've been there and I'll I'll give you a really good example. I launched the marketing advisory network 5 years ago. I'd wanted to do it for five years before that. Sure. And I was and I was super hesitant to do it. And I would take a couple consulting projects, but I never was willing to just take the leap of faith that it takes to start your own business with no clients, which is effectively what I did. Sure. And, um, and just go for it. And it took a friend of mine, his name is Dan Kraus, and he runs a company now called Leading Results, but we work together at SAP. And I was talking to him about it, and he said to me, over coffee and I love him cause he's just so blunt and in all the ways that I need. Right. Which yeah, is yeah. like, Oh, Samantha, pull the band aid off already. You've been talking, you're half in, you're like looking for full-time jobs and you're, and you're doing consulting. What do you want to do? Like, Enough already. This is yep. the time you're going to do it, or you're not. And I needed somebody to do that, and he was 100% right. And literally, I left that coffee and I went and I um, signed up on companycorporations.com or whatever it was, and I got my LLC. And I went and I and I secured my URL, and I and I did it. And um, and so for me, I think what I try and do, whether it's on a big scale with somebody launching a new business, or it's on a small scale with a marketer struggling to find their own uh, personality in the company they work for and building up their personal brand or an owner who wants to go after a new market and is a little bit hesitant to do that, um, is I just give them the confidence in and try and do the same thing that Dan did for me, which is you can do this and the or you won't, but the only way you're ever gonna find out is to leap all in. Totally. So let's build a plan, right? And so I'm a person who needs to build a plan. So. Yes, I left that coffee and I went and secured it. But the truth is I had a plan of what I was going to do. I knew what kind of clients I could serve. I knew um, who in my network I was going to go to first to start building up my business. I I wrote down a list of like here's all the things I want to do to launch my business just like I'd been doing for companies I'd worked for all those years launching products. Sure, I needed the same thing. So for me, I find – giving people a little confidence and a little energy is always helpful and and a little kick in the the backside sometimes is necessary, but helping them build a plan is really what makes the difference between I'm excited for a week and I can do this for five years. And, um, and so we, My job and what I try and do with people is to help them build that plan and think through, here are all the things that we're going to take into account. Here are the ups and flows that you're naturally going to have. Let's write it down and then let's figure out how to change it as we learn, right? I'm not doing today what I was doing five years ago. My practice has moved and evolved as I've learned new things and I've gotten better at cash flow management and um, figuring out what work I could not only do but loved, right? It wasn't. Always um, the same thing. And I really wanted to build a practice of work I loved doing. Originally, you sometimes start off and you're just like, I'm going to take any work that I can get, right? Because sure. I'm, I am I want to, right? And, and a, a lot of product companies do this. I'm going to take any customer that I can get who will buy my product and in some cases who will just use it for free, right? I'm sure. just going to take them. And it's a really big mistake that we all want to naturally make. And so yeah. I try and help people really figure out Where I can add value because ultimately businesses grow when we satisfy customers,
0: not just when we sell them, right? Oh, totally. And part of of the reason I asked the question is because I think some people just need to hear from other people that have been through it and just decided to go for it that they dealt with the same issues and kind of insecurities that, you know, That they're going through currently it's just it was just a number of years ago and like to be honest it took me like a decade to do like the show I was that paranoid and scared to do it so like you know you said it took you five years before you launched the thing it took me a decade to do this right so I I think like just I think just telling people that other people struggled with that at least for me kind of earlier on in my career I never really got that. I kind of just thought like, oh, one day some, somebody's successful and then, you know, but they never really struggled. And you think like even really successful people still have failures. They're maybe not as huge sometimes, but they still fail in companies or businesses or ideas or, or things. And I think people are just scared to fail still.
1: Yeah. I think you're completely right. And here's the reality. If we don't fail sometimes, we're actually not trying hard enough. We're never going to sort of really go beyond our comfort zone. And like I said, I'll give you a great example of a a risk that I took that everybody... I thought I was crazy. I don't know what I was thinking. I was working for a a software company. We had been acquired. We'd been through a lot of changes. And I just was sort of burnt out for where we were going, right? Okay. There wasn't really anything wrong with it, but my job had changed, the team had changed, the people I worked for had changed, and I'd gotten them through all this transition, I looked around and thought, gosh, I'm just not challenged anymore, I'm in a holding pattern, and I don't sit still well. It's not in my nature to do that. And um, I went and said, I'd like you to lay me off, let me go, right? Like, can we can we work through this? Now, the, the part that made that really unusual is I was pregnant at the time. And I was very early in my pregnancy. um, And I had to know that, gosh, the work that I do, I love helping startups. I'm going to go look for a job. Nobody's going to hire a pregnant woman to do what I do and so I had to accept that I might not work for nine months or probably you know at that point because I was a couple months into sure. my pregnancy Sure. and um, I don't know if I was crazy or brilliant because I ended up finding this amazing job and I disclosed to them that I was pregnant because I would never want to put them in that position sure. and when I went for the interview we went through we talked to these interview and at the point where I thought I think they might be wanting to hire me and I want to work here I said to um, the woman who was just I'm you know I just need to let you know I'm expecting and i know i can do this job but i am pregnant and i'm gonna have this baby about when the company's gonna launch and i'm not you know i i don't feel right not telling you that sure and i um her face got pale. You know, she sort of got quiet for a while. And she goes, okay, thanks for letting me know. We talked for a few more minutes. We went pleasantries. I came home and told my husband, ah, I'm never going to hear from them again. That was nice while it lasted, right? And sure. um, And uh, and because there was, they were a startup and there was no one else in marketing except for the woman who was hiring me. So it was a really small team trying to launch the market for the first time. So hiring someone who they knew was going to be having a baby around the time of launch was a really – you know, would have put them in a challenging situation. Well, an hour later, my phone rings and they offered me the job. They said, we know you're the right person for this job and we will figure this out together. Yeah, And that, that's awesome. Right. That's incredible for sure. that. You know, I, I look back on that and I think, God, was I crazy to do that? But boy, were they brave to take me on. And, um, and it worked out to be this incredibly fabulous experience. I think all around, we had a really successful launch and, um, and, 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 you know, I was with Infant in Arms typing up the press release, right, and doing all that. And it was um, this crazy, crazy journey. But we just have to take these chances. And somehow, when we work hard, and when we're doing the right thing, it does work out. And I, and it doesn't always work out how we think it's going to, sure. right? It's not always the job that we think we're going to get or the um, reaction that we think we're going to get, but something good comes of it. And even if that's something good is I learned a really painful lesson, cause there's plenty of times where I've failed and those painful lessons make me better. They make me better human. They make me better businesswoman. And, um, we all have to be willing to just jump in and take that chance and know that nothing can't be out undone, right? We, if, if totally. it didn't work out, I'd, I, I would have done something else. And no, I would have, but- I would have found work later, right?
0: No, totally. I, I think the the best advice that I got that's kind of related to, I think, what you're, you're talking about here is like, you should always be looking to kind of upgrade. And if you have like the greatest job in the world, obviously, it's going to be hard to kind of upgrade. Or if you, you know, you're running your own thing, obviously, it's going to be kind of hard to upgrade. But if you're not really that happy in your job, you know, you should always be kind of Looking to either go do your own thing or go to another company or kind of, you know, to your point, like you literally were like, look, I'm just going to get laid. I, I want like to leave this company. So like lay me off. And then you literally were just like, I, I really want to go work at this company. You happen to be pregnant. Like it, it's all kind of I think people are just kind of scared to just take that like leap. Right. And, and I love that that you're, you just did that. I think that's inspiring in itself.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. And, and, you know, it does take just that, that leap of faith and it's fair and it's comfort also. So I've been running my consulting practice now for four years, five years, and about a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, I, I was really comfortable. I, you know, a hundred percent of my business is referral. I'm doing very well. I'm very comfortable. I love the work I'm doing. I could have just kind of kept going with the flow and, you and doing what I'm doing, and I probably could have done it for another five years or so. But I decided I need to keep challenging myself because I think we need to do that. If we want to inspire other people sure. and we want to help them, we have to challenge ourselves. And so I decided I was going to write a book. Sure. <laughs> and I'd never done that before. I'd done lots and lots of writing, but I'd never written a book before. And um, it's it's doing the kind of thing that keeps us not not just falling you know, to fear but to comfort right? Sure. We have to get outside our comfort zone and we have to constantly be living and learning new skills. And we have to have our teams when we manage people, right? Or we we lead people, we need to make sure that they're always striving to do more and learn more. And when we do that, our organizations get lifted up by that process.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and we serve our customers more and there's all this new energy that we get to utilize.
0: No, I, I 100% agree with you. So What's the book called and what did you write the book about?
1: The book is called Unleash Possible and it is a marketing playbook um, for marketers who want to drive sales. And it is written for marketers because I go through and really wanted to provide really practical advice about how to execute different kinds of uh, strategies and campaigns. But it's also very much written for salespeople or executives who want to understand better how marketing works so they can be part of that process and support it. And and because really the whole company has to be aligned around, around marketing. So each chapter tackles a big thing, right? So I'll, there'll be a chapter about account-based marketing as an example. And we'll start with you know, a story about something, some aspect of it, and, and sort of step through that, give some real practical tips, and then also do, you know, a case study in each, each chapter. There's one on content strategy, there's one on building buyer insights, and really understanding how to learn about our buyers, there's stuff about data in here, there's a big, one of my favorite chapters is about how sales and marketing become better aligned in organizations. Okay. And, It's really the, um, it was a really cathartic experience for me because it was, okay, I've been doing this now for a number of years. Um, What have I learned, right, along the way? And now I'm going to write down what I've learned so that other people can experience it and use it in their own organization. So it made me become really crystal clear about how I felt about certain things. Um, and it was really important that it be a practical guide and not a theoretical piece to me. I, I'm happy to come out and do keynotes and inspire people and, and run, but I'm I'm really a hands-on kind of person, and so I always want to take that next step and let people understand how to implement this this energy into their own companies.
0: Sure. So, like obviously, people should go read the book to get everything. But what you kind of mentioned, you have some favorite chapters. What, maybe give some examples of the kind of stuff that, you know, you talk about and kind of, you know, people can actually put in place, you know, maybe before they pick up the book.
1: Yeah. You know, one of my, um, the pieces, the chapter's there's a chapter in the book called Stop Chasing the C-Suite. And I think it might be the most important chapter for B2B marketers in particular. Okay, And um, because... We in when we sell complex products and services, um, we're constantly getting pressure to sell up. Right? We're sure. we're saying, you know, get us in front of the you know the salespeople come down, get us in front of the president, get us in front of the CEO. I want to meet with the CFO, or I want to meet with the marketer, depending you know, chief marketing officer, depending on what they sell. And there's this huge um, cost to doing that. And it's not just a dollar cost, it's a mental cost, it's time, it's money to get in front of these executive audiences. And this chapter steps us through helping to decide if going after the C-suite is actually going to benefit your organization. Because in my experience, most of the time, we actually don't need to sell to the C-suite. And we waste our time and energy by chasing after a group of people who doesn't want to to learn about what we're doing, right? It's not top of their mind. And so this chapter begins with talking about um, a series of questions you can ask yourself about um, whether you're likely to be on the radar of the C-suite and whether it is worth investing. And then if you, it is worth investing in that, it gives you some tips about how to go after them. And I'll give you an example of one of the questions. So sure. um, for, for example, we wanna look at, um, does your product or service represent you know, 5% or more of that C-suite person's budget, right? You think about it, if I'm talking to a chief marketing officer who has a $2 million budget and what I sell is a $100 a month product, it's going to be really hard for this to get on their radar. They have probably delegated responsibility for whatever it is I do to someone on their team for good reason. They're looking at big things and big trends. and it's not always dollar value, so there's other assessments we need to make, but we do need to think about their time. And if we don't represent a significant investment by that CMO, we're, we're wasting their time by trying to put our product and service in front of them. Sure. So we want to make sure that we are sensitive to the audiences that we're going after. And if we are going to go after them, we have really good reasons other than it makes us feel good. Um, I tell a story in the book about a friend of mine who, you know, she worked for a company, I'd done some work for them and she said, you know, I've got to run this campaign to, um, their version of the C-suite. And I asked why. And we went back and forth. And she's like, we don't need to sell. We've been selling successfully to people who are the mid-middle level manager, but everybody feels like we should go up market. And they spent a lot of time and money trying to go up market. And ultimately, they got literally zero meetings out of their program. And it was a good program. It wasn't like they hadn't put the time and energy into trying. They had tried and they did many of the right things, but they couldn't get on the radar for that C-level audience because this wasn't a product that the C-level audience needed to pay attention to. Sure. And so um, to me, um, it's particularly for B2B marketers and in, in technology and in uh, professional services, this is something that happens constantly. Um, and it's a really hopefully useful guide for them to try and figure out um, if, if this type of investment is going to
0: pay off. Sure. So... How do you kind of tell people to reach out to people because it's tricky, right? And there's a lot of people that are are busy. They probably get tons of email or or whatever and sometimes like people aren't even trying to be rude. It's just they don't have time to answer every email, right? Like they if it doesn't catch them right away. So like how do you work with people to kind of make sure that, you know, their kind of marketing or kind of product idea or kind of sales pitch for a lack of a, you know, better term for it kind of gets in front of the target person in an organization?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, it's not an easy answer. And it's, you know, it's something that varies depending on what your business is and what you're trying to do. However, there are some guiding principles and the fundamental foundation to doing a good job at this is to truly understand our buyers. And sadly, a lot of people will not take the time to stop and do the kind of research you need to so that we're crafting messages that do attract the people that we need to attract that we know when the right time is to introduce something to them that we can not interrupt them but add value to what they're doing we're we're very good at marketing has gotten very good at interrupting i don't need to help anybody figure out how to interrupt right we sure. we they can pick up the phone and call somebody they know how to send an email out they you know know how to put a billboard sign up we know how to stand with our scanners at a trade show booth and you know mm-hmm. try desperately to make eye contact with anybody who walks by right sure um and, and look at their badge and say their name so they have to look at you and now they're trapped and you get to scan them right so um we we know all of those <laughs>
0: you're, you're right you're right, right?
1: Yeah. i don't need to teach anybody those techniques and we still need some of those kinds of you know reality is some of that we're going to we're going to do what I can help people with is and the piece that we don't do enough of work on is really truly understanding those buyers what motivates them, what they care about not in relation to our product and service but to their job right or to their life if I sell something maybe I'm not selling something that impacts them professionally and we by understanding that then we start to translate and we create content that is going to add value to them um, information that's going to help them. So when we do interrupt them, um, we're interrupting them with things that they care about and, um, can see value in. So if I'm going to send an email, let me send an email with something that's going to catch your attention, A, and B, something you're going to feel like, oh, good. They sent that to me. I appreciate it. I mean, not need their product or service, right? But I, this paper, this research actually helps me do my job or this, um, this new process that you've outlined makes my life a little bit easier. Right. And, and those types of things. So for me, that it, it, it's that, it's that foundational research then tied to content. That's not about us. Nobody needs me to help them write a paper about what their product does. Right. That we all know how to do that. And yeah, sometimes I'll do it as part of something else. That's not the hard part. The hard part is understanding how it applies to the people that we serve. And when we can get that correct, the interruptions that we're going to naturally do as part of our sales and marketing outreach then become valuable. Um, the other piece that I'll just add to that is I help people, um, say no quite a bit okay. and I help them, um, figure out what, what not to do. Uh, for example, I'll often come into an organization. And they'll tell me I've got my database is 200,000 people. Awesome what let's talk about who you target and when we get down to it we're targeting 200 companies sure. you've got 200,000 people in your database and really who you want to sell to is 200 companies something's disconnected there right Yep. and and why are we sending so much and they'll say well the, in order to hit my response rates and to get the number of downloads i need i need to grow my list but that's not targeted that's not focused right mm-hmm. so we're spending all this time and money because of we all grew up thinking we need to do this waterfall. We need to go after a huge group of people that then shrinks down and shrinks down and shrinks down. I'd rather completely flip that orientation and say who will be served by what I do. Let's really focus on adding value to their day-to-day life or their day-to-day job. And let's do fewer things, but do them incredibly well. And That is not always an easy change to make. Um, One of the other things that we talk about in the book is the difference between lead quality and lead volume. And I tell a story in there. um, It was probably, it's one of my favorite stories because I still picture the CEO's faces as as I did this. (laughs) So I got, it was one of my first consulting jobs. So it was really, really early in my consulting practice. And they hired me specifically To increase the number of leads that the company was generating. That was like in my statement of work, which by the way, I've learned I'd never put in a statement of work today. But at the time, you know, it was one of my first consulting jobs. It was literally in there. And so I come in, and before I start doing programs, I'm doing a complete audit about what they've done. I'm spending time with the existing team. I'm looking at everything, I'm looking at the report, I'm looking at their Salesforce system um, and in their marketing automation system. I'm also talking to customers, and I'm talking to uh, prospective customers. I'm sitting in on sales calls, listening. So I've got this – I've spent a few weeks really understanding the business. And I come back to the CEO who hired me and the chief revenue officer who hired me, who headed up sales, and we're sitting in a room, and I'm presenting the plan, the output. They're so excited. And the first thing I tell them is we're cutting leads by half. Really? And like – jaw, you know, they were – professional and so they didn't want to completely give away their game but then you know jaws dropped a little color washed out of their face and I could see this like why did we hire Samantha what is going on what do you <laughs> wait like what was wrong with you? you misunderstood the I want more leads part but the reality is they actually didn't need more leads they needed different quality leads and sure. so they were kind enough to sit quietly and let me step them through the process and why I had come to this conclusion and why, where we were wasting resources and how we were going to reorient. And the truth is we, um, we dropped lead count dramatically, but we increased revenue and our conversion rates got better and we got much more predictable. So, you know, it's, it's not always the obvious thing that we need to do. And part of my job and part of my role is to help people make the strategic assessments and shifts in strategy it, that might not be natural. It was easier to say, I want more leads, right? I've got to sure. come to a revenue number. I have my current conversion rate. Let's just put more on the top. It's, that's an easier conclusion to come to. But it was not the right thing for that business to do at that moment in time.
0: Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. And that's kind of like the modern way that kind of companies are kind of doing sales and marketing now. And I think if your company's not doing that, you're in trouble, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I'd like to believe that modern companies are doing that, but I can't. And maybe it's, you know, I do have some bias because I'm coming to help solve problems, right, and and get over challenges. So I I don't see all the... Healthiest of companies, right? I see sure. some that are struggling, um, and some that are really healthy but want to get to the next level. And um, but we we say we want to do it, and we know, but is a really big difference between knowing we need to do that and actually. Back to risk, right? Back to what we were talking about before, Kevin. It's just as hard for an organization to take that scary leap and say, I'm going to do half as many leads as I was doing before. That's sure. scary. Yep. And and we see that time. I see that all the time Or I'm going to not take on this customer because I know they want to buy my product or my service, but I'm not going to do a great job serving them. And so I'm going to say no to that revenue right now. That's hard totally. to do. Yep. Really, that might be the hardest thing that companies do. For sure. But it is um, – it's so critical. I was just at a – I was teaching a workshop in California um, last week in the okay. mid- middle of – and I was out there to help them roll out their account-based marketing program and to put more things in, in the process that they were working with. And we uncovered something really important is they actually had a bigger problem they needed to solve first, which is their win rate. On opportunities was much much lower than it needed to be and it had taken a huge dive and so I was out there to do one thing but we surfaced something that was really much more critical to solve and you know at the end of the day I was with the the founders of the company and I said I know this is not the conclusion you wanted to get to and I know you want me to go roll out a bunch of account based marketing programs for you but I don't feel good about doing that because if they're gonna come right into the same process you're already running they're gonna you're not gonna get return on that so let's instead focus on this other challenge this other obstacle you have and let's fix that first but that's that's a scary thing for those sure folks to do because they knew that they had that challenge and that obstacle they had thought the solution was to put more stuff up at the top again, right? right? right, right. And so even though we we know we need to focus and we know we need to do these things, um, we often fall into dangerous habits. And um, it's great sometimes just having an outside person come in. And one of the things that clients tell me constantly is, gosh, you came to that conclusion in half a day, and we've been studying this (laughs) for six months. I'm not magical. Right? I'm not magical. I wish I could tell you I was. Right, It's sure. not that. It's I'm objective. I yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. that history. Right, I don't have all the baggage about what we've done before or haven't done before. And so I have the opportunity to step back and look really clearly at what is um, happening. And so my advice, whether you pay people or not to do it, it's not about hiring a consultant, but it is about giving yourself being objective and making sure that you find ways in their natural day-to-day business to bring that objectivity to them, whether it's a a friend that they bring in to look at something, whether it's an analyst that they talk to, whether it's new hires before they get too indoctrinated, right? Let them do an audit. You know, all those things that we can use the techniques to keep us fresh and to keep challenging us and to keep us from getting too comfortable.
0: Sure. But do you find sometimes that's scary for you as somebody that got hired by a company to do a specific thing, and you literally go to them and say, like, no, 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 we need to do this first and then maybe get to that after?
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes it's scary, but um, I feel like it's my job to do that okay. and that my value that I add is not coming in and doing the letter of the statement of work. Sure. My job is to help you do the sort of the spirit of it. And you know what? I will tell you, in five years, there was one time it backfired on me.
0: Okay, where- Interesting
1: you know, the, the person said, you know, they were really unhappy that they didn't want that. And they wanted me to just do what I was hired to do. And, um, and I didn't trust my gut instinct in that one instance. And I did what they wanted me to do and they weren't happy with the results because all the reasons I, my gut told me not to do it yeah, were yeah. true. Fair. Um, and so, and so when I do have that moment of hesitation, I remind myself that, look, they hired me to help, them grow and to do their business. And so I'm going to give them the best advice that I have. What they they take it or not is going to be up to them. But I'm going to I feel like it's my obligation to to share those observations even if it's not the ones that they've hired me to address. And I think that's why people keep hiring me.
0: Sure. Um, no, that makes sense. And the most I think sense.
1: that's what right that distinguishes me from from other types of t- types of resources. And I think in the end, we all, myself included, people. I, I encourage people to give me feedback, clients, non clients, all kinds of things. And um, the hardest things to hear are mostly the things I I need to hear the most. Sure. Right. The yep. the biggest the biggest wake up calls are the ones that I need desperately to get. And um, I don't always like getting them, and I don't always enjoy giving them. But I do feel like um, it is, it's, the, it's the right thing to do. And again, it comes back to this confidence of um, going. I'm much more confident in doing it five years into my practice than I was, you know, six weeks into my practice. Sure. Um, and it, it comes with practice. I, you know, and even as a young woman, you know, the first time I led a team, um, at a company I had two people who were a lot older than me who worked for me at the time I was in my early 20s Interesting. and having someone who was 45 work for me felt really uncomfortable I was sure you know, I was sort of um I wasn't no, so I had to fake it sure <laughs> And enough. I, couldn't, I, I couldn't you know I just sort of went with it and um and we had a great relationship and that person wasn't uncomfortable it was completely my discomfort. It wasn't theirs. And that's one of the things we sometimes have to remind ourselves is, um, when we are uncomfortable doesn't always mean the person receiving the information is uncomfortable. And, um, and we shouldn't project our angst on other people. Cause if we actually project confidence, um, and authenticity, right. And, um, and and set up a conversation correctly. The, how it's received is totally different. I mean, that that whole setup of the conversation makes all the difference. If I'm going to be delivering you news, how I um, hold my body, how what words I choose to use, how much proof and evidence I put around what I'm going to share with you and also not faking when I don't know the answer. Right. So I'm really, um, I think people trust me because if I don't know, I'm not making it up. I'm just going to tell you, this is how we're going to find out. Um, and I'm going to give you, here's why I've come to the conclusion that I've come to and here's where we might need more. And that candor, I think is, we do it with other people, right? Yep. Entrepreneurs do this, but we don't always do it with ourselves. We don't totally. give ourselves the benefit of that, right? We're we're really guilty of that.
0: No, I, I 100% agree with you. But sadly, we're coming to the end of the show. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the company, and the book.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to have that opportunity. Um, the book is um, really easy. If you go to UnleashPossible.com, Um, That'll give you all kinds of information about the books. There's reviews up there. There's some of the tools and templates that I referenced in the book um, available for people to freely access. So would uh, encourage people to go there. And um, from a consulting practice standpoint, or just from Samantha and who I am, I am on LinkedIn and and Twitter, as you would expect. But you can also go to marketingadvisorynetwork.com. And um, there is lots of information there about what we do. There's a blog there that has a lot of good um, practical tips and tricks and stories, um, some of which are happy stories about (laughs) things that went really well, and some of which are sort of my nightmares that I share. It's sort of a therapy session. That's awesome. We all know we're not alone. We all have these frustrating things that happen to us, and, and how we learn from them and how we share them, I think, is really important.
0: No, I 100% agree with you. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time into your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It's been a pleasure.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and we'll keep them in the future.